Like, Man United were playing, uh, you'd be like sitting here in your Man United jocks all week. Right. Not the fact right. that it's Man City about to do a treble, you are studiously ignoring it. Let's let's just call it. It's true. OTB AM live weekday mornings from seven thirty on the OTB Sports app. Off the ball daily. Now you're welcome along to the Sunday Papers. So very happy to say we're joined live here in studio by Kleena O'Connor, who coaches in the worlds of GA and Irish hockey, and we have Timmy McCarthy as well, former Irish basketball captain and coach. You're there, Timmy. How you doing? Good, Joe. How are you? Great, thanks. Cleaner, good to have you in the studio. Thanks for popping thanks, in. So I'll just give people a general sense of the back pages. Uh, three guesses what the lead is. It's Manchester City right across the board. So the Mail on Sunday, first of all. History makers, lots of photographs from last night. The main one being uh, Rodri after he scored the only goal of the game. So Manchester City won, Inter Milan nil. And beneath that on the uh, Mail on Sunday this story as well across the papers Ireland boss Vera Pau set to sign new deal ahead of World Cup so she was talking to the media this week and she was asked if there is a good chance she may sign a contract extension before the team fly out to Australia on July the 8th and she said we are talking Pau smiled says uh, Mark Gallagher we're talking and I hope so but we'll see we have the Sunday Independent then. It's a picture of Rodri sliding on his knees after that goal. City delight as Rodri strikes sees Pep's side seal historic treble and uh, David Heitner writing the story beneath. The long road from League One ends in Euro glory in Istanbul. That almost makes them sound like plucky underdogs, which isn't quite the feeling, I think. But to be fair, League One wasn't a million years ago either. The uh, Sun party like it's 1999. Again, it's that picture of Rodri pictures alongside of Pep Guardiola blowing kisses to the crowd and Erling Haaland screaming to the sky at full time and joy and then uh, Sunday Mirror Sport treble yell Guardiola finally gets his hands on Holy Grail as City win Champions League for third trophy of the season pictures of Grealish and Rodri and Haaland and Guardiola on the back page so very much leading the way Kleena I know you watched uh, highlights I don't think Timmy if you watched the full 90 she missed a huge amount I watched the full night to Joe and it was a very poor game in reality. Um, I thought Inter played well. Uh, you know, they, they set up their stall and and they stayed with it. They just, you know, had a couple of big chances. Lukaku had a big chance uh, and stopped another chance. Um, and, you know, th- th- there was a deflection on the ball back from Gundogan back to Rodri, which kind of helped the ball fall into Rodri's face. So, uh, overall, I thought it was a poor game of football. I thought maybe sometimes finals are. It looked like two teams... Um, were under enormous pressure. When I when I watched the cup final last week between City and United, Joe, I thought City were poor in that game. I said, if City play, play like this um, last night in, in the Champions League final, they'd find it hard to get over the line. And they did play as poorly as that. And uh, they got the goal, they got the breakthrough, obviously, and they got the victory. But I thought they were far crying out for the team that, you know, demolished some of the other big names uh, in, along the way to this final. And so, Tina, I don't believe you missed an off that. Uh, even if you've got many highlights, I'm not sure there was too many highlights for you to watch. Mm. What are your What's your general sense of the city story this season, Kleena? Yeah, I think it's kind of reflected in in the, the pieces today. I think everyone's a bit it can acknowledge the 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 I suppose the flair, the quality, all of that stuff. But even even today, when you're reading the papers, it's, it is a little bit flat, isn't it? It's a bit of oh, it's kind of this, the the same thing again. And like Jonathan North Northcroft's piece in the the Sunday Times opens talking about had uh, the thing that Pep 
values over everything else is consistency. Now, as a spectator, as a as just a general observer of soccer, for me, consistency gets a little boring at, at times. But, but in in one sense, it isn't it amazing and the longevity of, of of all this success. And then the other bit, oh, it's well, it's a bit boring now, isn't it? So it's it's a funny. It's I think for someone who isn't a, a diehard City fan, it's a it's a funny. Uh, response, or I find myself mixed emotions about it. You know, I can appreciate some of it, but the other bit, I'm like, ah, a bit more exciting would be great. You know. Yes, I think everybody, um, Timmy, has that like intellectual appreciation for the brilliance of Pep and the brilliance of City, and yet when it comes to whatever emotion they elicit, there is, I don't know, a certain flatness. I would say, anecdotally, and even across talking to people, and even across the pages, and not to mention. The small matter of 115 charges looming over the whole operation. And as Tina said, I think that comes across in a couple of the pieces. The flatness is sort of because they're expected to win it. You know, it was sort of like, you know, they're going to win it. This is just going to happen. And sport is not really what that's about at times. You know, you like to get to final and and believe that somebody else has a chance in that sense. I thought what, what I thought was interesting in Norcox piece though was. I didn't realise that they're now the fourth all-time leading um, successful team in England. Like that's an astonishing achievement, Joe, in the 15 years since they've been taken over. Like you know, and like like they're now fourth behind United, Liverpool, and Arsenal. Like I didn't realise they had won that many trophies. And you know, it's funny during the year. My my grandson Cahal is an uh, Arsenal fan for us, and the rest of us are all Chelsea fans, as you well know. And um, during the year, there, there was a view sort of from us in the, in the family here and the other grandchildren. But if City win, we don't care because, you know, they just have all the money and all the pair. And I think that was actually what came across last night. If City win, won the Champions League, nobody really cared because, you know, there was no there was no love about it. There was no affection about it. There was no excitement about it. And as I said earlier, they didn't play well. But it was just, um, you know, they have all this money. They can buy all the players they want. They bought Haaland and, you know, he just sort of got them to the next step. And... You know, and the big the big point is, you know, I, I think in the piece, Rob, Rob Draper's his piece, I think, in, in the Mail on Sunday, talked about their journey from laughing stock to the Kings of Europe as the headline. And you think about their journey, you know, that from 2008 to 2013. But there's big question marks. There's these 115 charges that the FA um, are either slow to respond to or finding themselves in legal difficulties trying to respond to that. There was the UEFA fine that they had. They got, I think, it was 10 million at the time. So... There's big question marks over City, and um, more than any other team, you know, who who, who has had benefactors of, of, of this sort. There's big question marks about have they played, you know, within the rules of the game. And I, I think the challenge for the UEFA and for the Premier League is how serious are they going to take on them if they have broken the rules? You know, will they take back the trophies? You can never take off the treble now. They've won the treble, and even if you take back the trophies, they've won the treble. But I do believe that there was just a sense of inevitability. I was listening to James E. Tonkey earlier on there about the Clare um, Limerick game. And there's a sense of excitement. There's a sense of not knowing where we're going. You know, even the Limerick are favourites, but who could Clare pull it off in that sense? There was none of that last night. And that wasn't just because it was soccer. There was just none of it because City came into it as overwhelming favourites. And um, when they won it, you know, even I was flicking between RT and between BT. And even when they won it, even the British commentators of BT couldn't really muster up a lot of excitement, uh, you know, which they normally would have for British teams. Oh, obviously, I, I, I don't know. I, I thought in places they went a bit OTT. Their lead commentator described it as the greatest story in club football history, and now it has its ending. I thought, what? 
what? The yeah, greatest, the greatest that, what? No, oh. Yeah, no, I didn't hear that, but it's not the greatest story. I mean, it's I, well, you know, no, it's, I, I Leicester think he, winning the league. Leicester winning the league was a great story. Yeah, I think he was leaning into that League One aspect and uh, not acknowledging what's happened since 08. Like, it is, again, it's it's hard to be swept away when it cuts to their owner who's at his second ever Manchester City game. <laughs> you know, this isn't like Jack Walker in tears when Blackburn win the league. And on the um, charges against them, in Rob Draper's piece, which just takes the angle of charting City from 08 to 2023, you know, he harks back to that UEFA investigation and that famous line from Al Mubarak, who really is driving things more so than Sheikh Mansour, it must be said, to be fair to him, only attending two games. I don't think he's ever claimed to be wholly invested in the day-to-day fortunes. But um, at the time, City's legal counsel had wrote that Al Mubarak had said he would rather spend £30 million sterling on the best 50 lawyers in the world and sue UEFA for the next 10 years than agree to a financial penalty. Now, in the end, they paid the financial penalty, but akin to the PIF grinding down the PGA Tour, City have no problem if they need to in grinding down UEFA with 10 years of very expensive lawyers. The interesting, um, I suppose, like proposition looking forward is Jonathan Northcroft's piece where mentions Guardiola, who's contracted to 2025. Uh, this is a man who has now won 33 major honours after 15 years. And Northcroft really is making the argument that City could catch up on the likes of Manchester United, Liverpool and Arsenal very quickly and start stockpiling European silverware very quickly. It's inconceivable that they'll catch Liverpool or United in Premier League terms anytime soon for obvious reasons. But in Europe, they really could. And he says, excluding group stage dead rubbers, they've lost only four Champions League matches in four seasons. They've reached two finals, semi-final and a quarter final. And effectively, they've finished off their progression at this level. The Bernabeu maybe last year, those few minutes of madness being the final uh, lesson. And since then, they have comfortably beaten, since 2020 and 2021, beaten Bayern Munich, Atletico Madrid, Borussia Dortmund, PSG, Inter Milan. They are no, There are no longer any continental European teams who hold the slightest mystique or fear for them. PSG and Bayern are at the end of cycles and in the middle of messes. Uh, Barcelona and Atletico are even further back. Real Madrid have the challenge of replacing Karim Benzema. So he says it feels that Real apart, the sides likeliest to thwart City in Europe in the near future will come from the Premier League. Uh, but those Champions League slip-ups against Spurs in 19 and Liverpool in 18 belong to an earlier stage of this Man City team's development under Guardiola. And with five English titles in six seasons... City should be favourites to win any all-England tie. In short, Manchester City are peaking in Europe at the exact moment when the conditions are right for a prolonged period of domination. Rather than the end of their Champions League quest, Istanbul may be the start. It's a pretty convincing argument that the Champions League is very difficult to win, notwithstanding. City are in a great position, really as long as Guardiola wants to stick around. Well, it seems like they have a good recipe, doesn't it? When you when you you lay it out like that, and you look at the profile of their squad, and and also the their their calling card of consistency. So it doesn't matter if we've done it already. We just want it. We just want more and more and more. And can you back it up? Can you do it again? That seems to be in the DNA already. Yeah. So it 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 does seem that like why as long as. Pep wants to be there. Like, why? Why couldn't it continue? There doesn't seem to be any major obstacle, uh, given the current s- situation or scenario. Yeah. 
the uh, Oliver Brown piece in the Telegraph and it's also in the Sunday Independent it takes the route of acknowledging the 115 charges and acknowledging the 2 billion spent during the last seven years but then does dedicate the rest of the column to actually saying we do have to give Guardiola enormous credit here he deserves so much better than just to be seen as the figurehead for some colossal corporate vanity project and I think that's right because you may have misgivings about some of Guardiola's personal behaviour you absolutely may have misgivings about uh, some of City's spending but what this guy has done and is doing over the last 15 years is absolutely extraordinary most of the footballing world is copying his style of play Uh, He comes up with innovations totally, which in retrospect we analyse and make sense of, but he's dreaming these things up. He's looking at John Stones and he's looking at Haaland and he's saying, you know what, let's leave the 4-3-3 I've spent my career playing and let's go with three at the back and a box of four, you two on the wings, Haaland up front. And it all makes sense when we see it laid out, but I mean, he's dreaming this up. Nobody was saying this is what City should do before he came up with it. And... You know, this style of football isn't going to work. Sell a lot of very respected pundits um, when he arrived in England, Timmy. So you do kind of have to genuflect at now three-time Champions League winner, uh, two times a treble winner with two different sides and say, certainly of my lifetime, he's the best coach I've ever seen with due respect to Ancelotti's four Champions League wins. And and you've seen, you know, a few decades more than I have, I suspect. But um it is kind of exceptional what Guardiola is doing and we can kind of take it for granted in amongst the controversy. There's no doubt it's exceptional and I think when you when you talk about, you know, he had a big monkey on his back last night and uh, he had never won a Champions League without Messi. You know, and that was a big issue, you know, in, in the background, Joe, because, you know, he went to Bayern Munich and obviously the big ambition was to win and he didn't do it there. He had failed with City up the last night. So, you know, there was a lot of talk that he hadn't the, the talent, which was unfair. Um, to do it on Messi. But what there was an interesting piece in, in the Norcock piece. He says, whether you perceive it as bought or earned, to be enjoyed or endured, um, a threat or just another rich club enjoying success, the same way rich clubs have throughout football history. It's not credible to deny the genius of Guardiola or potent beauty of the football. And you made a point. He has evolved the game. I, I, I can remember being at, at Chelsea when Mourinho came in and he, Mourinho brought 4 3 3 into England, okay? And then Ferguson adjusted. Uh, a year or two later and, and but Ferguson never really evolved the game and, and Ferguson was an exceptionally successful manager obviously I know many United fans may not like this but he never evolved the game you know he had, he had a structure and a system and he he, he, he followed you know, the evolution of the game Guardiola is, is evolving the game he's creating you know new structures new systems and yet he's staying very true to what he believes and you know seeing his point earlier consistency is the big thing for him Consistency in how quickly they win back the ball. Consistency in, you know, how they create opportunities. You know, consistency in how they defend as a unit from corners and from set pieces. He really is into the minutiae detail, and that's what separates him. And you know, in my view, he's the best club manager I've ever seen. There's no doubts in that. And I, when Mourinho came to Chelsea first, he was exceptional. He, as I said, he brought in four three three, Duff and Robin and Drogba. It was exciting. And then he changed fundamentally, became a defensive. You know, um, focus coach and, and and played with fear. Guardiola's never had his team play with fear. They play with an expression. They express themselves. Yet they've got the talent. There's no question in that. And you know, despite the fact that he has, you know, practically the best squad in the world, he has practiced practically many of the best players in the world. Not necessarily all of the best players, but many of the best players in each of the positions in the world. 
He allows them play within his system, which I really love uh, as a coach. He allows them play within his system and express their individuality. And I think that's really what coaches need to do. They need to allow, in any sport, GA, rugby, soccer, whatever, basketball, allow people express their individuality within the structure of the system. And Guardiola has evolved the system and has done that and deserves the plaudits that he gets. You know, as you said, he's won two travels in two different clubs. Um, he's come into England. And despite all the money they've had, he's got his team over the line in a, in a, in a t- at a time where they've kind of gone off the ball in the last few weeks. After they ruined the Premiership, they kind of gone off the ball. He got him over the line and he deserves all the plaudits that he gets. And you know, he's not stopped it. There's no questions. They'll go and buy new players. They'll go and make sure that they, they strengthen the squad. And that was one of the great strengths of Liverpool in the 80s and United in the 90s. They always strengthen their squad when they're on top. City will do the same. And the danger for for in a European sense is that they could, you know, win six European Cups. This team could go on and win six European Cups, you know, um, or three or four European Cups. They've got that talent. Real Madrid have shown they've got the expertise and they've got the legacy. Mm. And City could create that legacy on the Guardiola if he stays. And that's the big question in the future. Because, Kleena, I don't know how often in your fields of coaching, be it GEA or the Irish hockey team or beyond, that you watch a performance from a team and you say, oh, that's new. I've never in 2023 really seen that before. Yeah, I mean, it's it's rare because everyone's kind of building and tweaking and, and every now and then something new comes along. I mean, the big one... Um, in GAA was you know Jim McGuinness and Donegal to, to me that was the, the biggest shift in how people approach the games but since then have we really seen a huge amount then you had I suppose how to counteract that um, and how to deal with that type of defence but it's always small small pieces that have been in the ether for a while but it, it's very rare that you have somebody who comes along and says okay I'm going to do something totally different here because it's it's risky you know, and and it's it takes a, an inno, an innovator to be able to look at the game differently because we we all we, you you play it safe, you play certainty, you play the stats. You know, this is what we know. We yeah. won't do it too drastic. You know, because it's interesting. I heard Gareth Southgate talking recently, and he was asked. It was at the League Manage, Managers Association Awards, and Guardiola yet again was Manager of the Year. And Southgate was asked about the effect Guardiola has had on football, or even on English football, and he was saying. Like, to be honest, the, some of the talent I'm working with now, when they were nine and ten, their dads were watching Guardiola's Barcelona play out from the back repeatedly and they started doing that. And so I've been gifted, uh, you know, a, a generation who've been doing it since they were eight, nine and have watched Guardiola's Barcelona do it since mm. they were eight, nine. Mm. When he first started doing it, people thought he was insane. Yeah, yeah, and and that's it. Uh, that's that's the maverick coaches who do things differently, and then and then all of a sudden, the minute it works, everyone jumps on it. Well, I mean, know? the imitation yeah. is off the charts, yes. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Would you have that in every sport? True. And, and in sports science and everything, you look over the fence. What are they doing? Oh, they won something. Therefore, that is absolutely the way to go. Yeah. And then, but but somebody like him will will find a new innovation because somebody else will will challenge his style or bring something to the table, and he'll have to you'll have to look at it differently again it will happen well that's Manchester City so they are treble winners not the dramatics of 99 almost a more sophisticated opposition at arm's length type uh, win than do or die moments and last minute winners which is uh, maybe less heart stopping but more impressive in many ways we'll take a very short break Timmy and Cleena staying with us we'll check in with James O'Connor on the far side of the break Claire are four points to the good in the Munster hurling final just on the cusp of half time 
You're very welcome back. Let's check in at the Gaelic Rounds. 54 minutes on the clock. James O'Connor is there. So from being three points to the good at half time, Clare now starting to just be in danger of letting Limerick get away from them, Jamesy. Yeah, um, Limerick have really come out strong in the second half. Joe, I mean, they've outscored Clare now. He gets 1-8 to two points in that period and Clare are in trouble. Um, critical, I suppose, Limerick got David Reedy had a really good score, you know, on the from the throw-in, a ball that maybe Clare had and maybe lost. So that got Limerick rolling. Galland then a couple of frees. Uh, that was sandwiched between a, a good Tony Kelly score from Clare, but the critical score, the 44th minute, beautifully angled ball from the far sideline by David Reedy, angled in front to Galan. Keen Nolan one-on-one lost his hurley and in that situation Galan in on goal just sidestepped it back Rory Hayes was trying to get back in and buried a pass to Ever Quilligan and Limerick since then shortly after that again Ever Quilligan pulled off a good save again when Galan was en route to goal um, Jim O'Dwyne made a great effort to get back put maybe a little bit of pressure on him and Quilligan pulled off you know a, a good save but Clare very much under the pump and Galan leading the way I think he's won 1-11 now Joe that's including one three from Peter Duggan great chance here Ryan Taylor oh he's fumbled it Claire might get something out of it here Joe but they badly need a score David Fitzgerald hasn't been in the game at all and, um, and again he's missed a chance and Claire has said Claire in a spot of bother Joe because they're just struggling to get any traction at the moment Tony Kelly now a chance to clear badly need a score here that's blocked again and Kelly's had a couple of those and Limerick again just just clearing their lines Joe and Claire going to rue these chances because you can't afford to miss these opportunities and Limerick huge space in front of that full back line Norton has been replaced by Shane Amori but I'm not sure if he's necessarily a full back he's done well there Peter Casey's on but Limerick as I said very very much on top and Claire totally under the pump Joe can't seem to win any ball in their own puck out and they badly need to score just to get them back in the game now still listen 15 minutes left and Claire Shane O'Donnell heading on goal yeah he bangs that over and that might get Claire rolling again so 119 Limerick 115 Clare it's a hurling match Joe it's only 4 four points 15 minutes left but Clare badly needed it now and they're going to have to finish strong to pull this off very good thank you Jamesy Jamesy O'Connor at the Gaelic Rounds so again 56 minutes in the clock 4 point gap Clare with the most recent score there as you heard uh, Limerick leading by 4 we are going through the Sunday papers just before we wrap up and the clock gets against us we'll uh, move on to the next topic Clean O'Connor here in studio Timmy McCarthy with us as well the live PGA Tour merger everywhere everywhere sports shows and very much beyond over the past couple of days it seems to have caught the imagination pieces across the board uh, for instance Tommy Conlon focuses in on uh, McElroy I guess as many people have and um, well he says it's quite a good line from uh, this period on really McElroy is going to reside in the penthouse suite of the world's strangest incarceration programme he doesn't want to be there he doesn't need the money, but now that he is there, they're going to pump the cash into him anyway, like a duck being force-fed to produce foie gras. So, I'm not sure if Roy McIlroy sees his life that way, but Tommy Conlon does. Um, all of uh, the merger and the disruption of the past uh, 12 months in golf was, of course, financed, as he writes, by the Public Investment Fund, founded in 1971 by the ruling family of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the PIF being the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. They're just shy of $700 billion at the moment. So you've got to see that 700 billion as kind of pocket change to invest globally in everything from real estate to banking to technology to startups to healthcare to private equity. And of course, sport is a fun thing and a profitable thing to invest in as well. The uh, sports acquisition spree is the brainchild of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and also um, Al Rumian is in charge of it. He's now the chairman of this new entity involving the PIF and the PGA Tour. 
And so they've been going at golf for the last, say, four years, if you haven't followed this too closely. They started hosting the Saudi Open. Um, McElroy was offered two and a half million just to play in that. So for four days of his time and he turned that down and he was asked if part of the reason he turned it down was because of where the money was coming from. And he said 100 percent there is a morality to it as well. Fast forward uh, a couple of years and it's all very complicated and a lot has happened here. But in effect, really, Piff tried to invest in golf. Golf said no. Piff said fine. We have limitless money. We're setting up our own tour. They offered stupid money to lots of players. Lots of players took it. And they started what is in effect a war of attrition. So over the last year, the PGA Tour had to up the prize fund. The PGA Tour uh, was involved in a legal dispute, again, not dissimilar to Man City and UEFA. And it seems that the legal bill was already at 30, 40 million just this year. And they haven't even gone into a courtroom yet. So that had the potential to drag on for as long as the Saudis felt like they wanted it to drag on. Not that they particularly were enjoying the court case either because discovery was going into areas of their uh, regime that they didn't want it to go. So it made sense for both sides to come together. For the PGA Tour, their financial future is beautiful. They'll be funded by the PIF going forward. Uh, This new company will have Al Rumian as chairman and Jay Monan, the PGA Tour commissioner, as CEO. The PGA Tour, in my opinion, are deluding themselves into thinking, therefore, they're in charge. They are most certainly not. I've seen succession. I know how boardrooms work (laughs) and money is going to run the show. And uh, that's kind of where we are. The Live Boys will, in the next year or two, depending on how much longer they pretend to keep the Live Tour going, they'll uh, saunter back on to the PGA Tour, having made... It depends on whether you're Phil Mickelson, in his case, the guts of 200 million to uh, Camp Smith, well over 100 million signing on feed. They'll uh, waltz back in and um, say, well, that was a very profitable year or two away. And I suspect McElroy and several others will bristle. Uh, meanwhile, all of us looking on will think, well, here's another sport run by a regime that behaves uh, despicably, is the truth, on so many fronts. But uh, well, they're running the world because they have 20% of the world's oil. So happy 2023 to you, Lena. That's about the gist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks. That's very uplifting. I know. Yeah. It's the, and, and that was McElroy's um, demeanour, I thought, in his press conference during the week, one of resignation. Yeah, he looks like someone who's worn down by the whole thing. Yeah. And and in this, so Tommy Conlon talks about him and uh, Shane McGrath talks about him in the, the Irish Mail on Sunday. And same thing, you know, we, we're all, yeah, brilliant Rory and your morality and your ethics and fair play and fight the good fight and and giving up his time for extra committees and meetings and all this stuff and now it's oh well well that was kind of pointless maybe just go back and focus on the golf again it's almost um, a degree like the way people are talking of like that was a bit naive really I mean the adults got in the room and they worked things out like the last year was just sabre rattling it wasn't real I, I kind of I, I felt I feel like saying you know what did you think was going to happen in the world that we live in now did you really think that you, that this that this wouldn't end up this way and even you know the fact that the the main reason that well a significant reason that there there's been some sort of an agreement is because no legal bills well, we're actually both losing money here so do you know what the money is way more important than even our us wanting to have our own our own tour it, the, the, the money is the most important thing and that's unfortunately just reality never mind any human rights issues or anything like that like the money is the reality yeah and that, that's and it can be it can be uh, sobering to, to to see that play out in action but that that's that's the reality yeah it's funny on the, the human rights aspect 
that Jay Monaghan is getting the most criticism for, uh, as he was accused of doing by a survivors group, co-opting the 9-11 survivors. Because last year, mm. like if you're, again, I, I appreciate people aren't following all this in granular detail, but the, the basic like tactic of the PGA Tour was initially to say, oh, legacy, don't you, you know, your legacy is important. Stay with us. And all the players say, nah, I'll take the money. And then strategy number two was to go in for the morality play. 9-11, 9-11, 9-11. Mm. And a lot of the players still said, well, I'm going anyway. And in the end, the PGA Tour stumped up money. But they don't really talk. Um, I, the American media, I find anyway, Timmy, the human rights thing, again, I, I feel a bit like... I don't know, not to use succession metaphors endlessly here, but on that election night episode, and there's no spoiler here, but when like Shiv brings up, but hang on, this is like a really bad precedent. Like uh, uh, Rome turns to him, uh, her and says, don't be such a, chi- a bad president, don't be such a child. Like, mm. what are you talking about? That's irrelevant. And I sort of feel like that's how the human rights aspect is treated at the moment here. And that was always inevitable. So I, I think you know, last year, I think it was the Centurion Club in London where they had a first event. And I was actually in the studio with yourselves. And um, this came up. The lived, you know, conversation came up. And I remember saying, look, um, you know, they're professionals. They'll go, these guys will go to live. They get money. And eventually, it'll all come back together. They'll all come together again. Now, I didn't expect a genuine job within a year. No. I really didn't expect that this would happen in a year. So, um, so that's the first thing. The second thing, if you look at the headlines, I mean, uh, Shane McGrath says, this shameful episode should not should order how God foreseen, but it won't. Um, Tommy talks about the choice between ethics and wallets. Paul Kimmage on the other page says, God's value is used to offer refuge in a grubby world, but now golf is a, game, is a grubby game. But ultimately, it's about money. And and, and sports watching, there's, a, there's actually a piece as well uh, in the Observer, page nine, by Will um, Unwin. Now, it's a football piece about Benzema joining Ronaldo in the kingdom and others would follow. And the Saudis wanted to get the World Cup in 2030. Because they defeated Argentina and Qatar, they believe that they, they have a chance of showing their potential. But, you know, they want to make their, their, their Saudi league um, a bigger league and attract better players in, in that sense. And obviously Benzema is a big player still in the sense of Ronaldo could have been at the end of his career, but Benzema is not definitely at the end of his career. So the whole idea, and, and I think Tommy, Tommy Connell called it out, clearly when he says, you know, one could argue that the House of Saud buying up golf, buying up sport, is not a vast enterprise in sport watching. But in fact, the opposite. If anything, the publicity accrued from these ventures seem to have exposed their crimes in a way that wouldn't have happened had the kingdom remained shrouded. You know, um, many people are paying attention now. But the reality is they don't care. And that's what his argument is like, that the Saudi government don't actually care. So this money, sports washing and, and the money they're putting in, um, that they don't care. They're actually, you know, normalizing. They're saying this is how we live our culture and we're normalizing it. And by investing in all these sports, we're just sh- sharing our experience. And whether you like it or not, we have the money. If you, you know, I thought as well, Shane McGrath's point about McElroy was a very interesting one. He said, yet the contention that McElroy is a victim is entirely absurd. He has backed this deal, one of the greatest deals in sport history. And it will help him make and his peers much richer. Because McElroy definitely was sold a pop by Jim Monon and by the, by, by the PGA for the last 12 months. But himself and Padre came out as realists this week and said, look, it's about money. It's good for the game and there'll be more money in the game. And when you look at the live situation, you know, when you believe that the guy who won the Centurion Club event in London last year earned more for that event, okay, uh, in a 54-hole event in, 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 in their shorts and polo shorts, than the guy who won the um, Bears, uh, Bears Championship who got 3.6 million. The, the guy who won the live got 4 million. 
This comes down to money. And ultimately, at the highest level of sport, in the professional sense, the professionals pay for money. So there, there can be morality. You know, I mean, McElroy in 2019 didn't go across. And he said morality was one of the factors in that sense. He could have taken the appearance fees, so he definitely stood by his word. But now the reality is the PGA is, is, is in bed now with these guys. It's been going on for six months if you take the, uh, the views of the conversations. And despite the fact that they're asking McElroy to go and do what he did. Yeah. So it's like morality, sports washing, Joe, all these things become irrelevant. What happens here is that these guys will get more money and they'll just pay for more money. And, you know, in five years' time, it'll just be the norm. It won't be, the P, it won't be like the PGA was, was American and the DP world was European and Liv was Middle Eastern. It'll just be golf. But it'll be dominated, I believe, much more by um, the public investment fund at that point. Then. Because once money gets in, Joe, it's really hard to stop the growth. No, of course. I do agree totally, by the way, and have for a long time with Tommy Conlon. Sports washing is the wrong term for what's happening here. Mm. This is just Saudi Arabia and the um, other Gulf state uh, countries. I think there, I was reading recently, they're 3% of the world's landmass, but they have just over half the world's oil. So that's a good deal. Um, this is about them preparing for the post-oil economy. And sport is just one of half a dozen businesses that they're investing in. It does give them a certain prominence. It does normalise uh, them a touch. But ultimately, it is about money and the post-oil economy. Newcastle is going to be worth a hell of a lot more in 20 years than it is now, for instance. Same applies to this golf tour that they've um, uh, recreated. And um, I guess, you know, pragmatism rules because there is something almost a touch naive or childish when say take the States for instance because this is the PGA Tour we do seem to talk about this issue as if like this is the first dalliance between the world and say Saudi Arabia in this instance so Saudi Arabia discovers oil in 1938 from that moment America struck up a deal we'll give you all the military equipment you want we'll offer military protection you give us oil we're best friends forever since. Uh, and like similar deals apply all across the world. The UK, Boris Johnson was on bended knee to MBS uh, last year uh, trying to cultivate a relationship. And even just in the past week, the US Secretary of State is over in Saudi Arabia trying to repair relations post the Khashoggi merger, murder and some of the um, things Biden said at that time about MBS being a pariah. But like ultimately, that that, that um, relationship which dates to 1938 is going to be settled. So... You know, it is funny when we're suddenly saying, oh, God, Saudi Arabia are investing in golf. Like there, there is, a, I, I don't so know just, what we're expecting of our sport, really. Yes. Yeah. Why, why should, why, why do we think sport is going to be any different? Yeah. You know, we're, we're talking that, about. Well, that's it exactly. Why do we think that? I don't know. Well, because we have this naivety about the, the ideal, the idealism around sport. Mm. Um, and I think that's, it's changed so much, you know. Yeah. It's, it's this isn't a, a, a pure endeavor anymore. It's a massive entertainment global business, yeah. And therefore, it's subject to all the other global factors that every other big business is. Yeah, just is. Yeah. Uh, let's push on. It's just the way of the world. We're not going to change it here. Um, final thoughts, GEA related generally then. So we have a couple of pieces we want to hit on before the clock comes against us. Uh, Nadine Doherty uh, sets up the ladies football championship very, very well. 
uh, which starts next uh, week and uh, in short 12 team competition straightforward format top two teams in each group go through to the quarterfinals with home advantage and the teams who finish last have to stave off intermediate football and she says I mean parallels I think with the All-Ireland Men's Football Series that the, the groups are pretty predictable at the moment Armagh and Mayo will come out of Group 1 Group 2 will be Donegal and probably Meath who are obviously going through their own uh, soap opera at the moment uh, Waterford may cause a shock but probably not Kerry Dublin out of Group 3 Group 4 will be Cork Galway and then things will get moving so she, she says actually the last 10 days has had a soap opera quality and been pretty interesting and whetted the appetite me than elsewhere but that's kind of how we're set up for the ladies football championship and her point is once the inevitability of the group stages are done Kleena then it would be no harm if we had a bit of drama in this championship kicking off Yeah and I think I think Nadine is right um the, I'm, I'm mad interested to see what's what's going to happen in Meath. To be yeah. honest, um, that's that was a challenge for their uh, their new managers to come in. I think uh, David maybe two two game one two games in eight or something. So really difficult for him. Um, and now some of the the old guys coming back in to help Jenny Rispin keep the show on the road. So yeah. I'm I'm interested to see how that goes. And then you've Court and Kerry. So Cork whipped Kerry in the Munster final, which nobody saw coming. Yeah. Kerry would be disappointed with it. So I, th- I think once, as as Nadine says, once we get to the latter end, I, I it's it's unpredictable. It's yeah. probably more unpredictable than, than I've, it has been. She was saying yeah. the league was very predictable, and once we got into provincial finals, that yes. Cork Kerry game yes. and the machinations behind the scenes in mm. Meath and elsewhere, that it's mm. suddenly given it a bit of a jolt, maybe. Mm, I think so. Which it which it needs. It's uh, and I mean Meath me have dominated the last two years, and that that was something new and something everyone got very excited yeah. about that. But I think another little shift is, is on the way perhaps if the ladies championship needs a jolt Joe Broly on the same page the men's football needs like a revolution almost mm. so I, I don't know anecdotally I've never talking to people I've never heard people as down about men's Gaelic football as I have this year I really haven't and I'm, I'm kind of down on it myself actually I have found it very very hard going there have always been bad games for sure but it feels like we're getting the same type of bad game over and over now. Like there's this kind of homogenous quality to mm. the possession-based, risk-free football played at no pace. Like if I just have to sit through one more episode of uh, these players jogging across the pitch in possession to fist pass it to the player 15 yards across the pitch who's coming in the opposite direction and then rinse, wash, repeat. Mm. You know, it, it is tough going. Uh, you'll have seen this type of Joe probably piece before really he's he's just laying out where we are the McGuinness revolution and he cites baseball where Moneyball as brilliant as it was when it first emerged in baseball uh, it was imitated and so it kind of ruined the game for a while it became incredibly boring everybody started mimicking the Moneyball approach and the powers that be in baseball changed the rules and, and just punished negativity and it's actually led to a real resurgence in attendances and TV uh, viewership in baseball and he's saying look sometimes you have to intervene rugby intervenes all the time mm. um, curious for both your thoughts on this Kleena one diagnose the extent of the problem like is it not always thus and are we you know we have this conversation every year or is this actually a touch uh, worse than you've seen over the last say 20 odd years and then we'll follow on from there as, as to whether we need rule changes as bad as people are saying uh, yeah, I, I think it's become quite ingrained, generally speaking. Uh, and just from being on the ground coaching, this the, the, Joe Bryce is the cold tyranny of statistics. Statistics are really ruling coaching at the minute. And and in some ways, why wouldn't they be? 
you know, your job as a coach is to deliver a win. And if this is if this is how you think the best way it's going to happen, then you're going to do it. You're going to say, oh, no, that's not nice football. I'm not going to play it. Yeah. I'll choose to lose. You know, coaches aren't going to do that. And nobody, um, to be fair, is naive enough to think that their only obligation is, ju- is not just winning. Everyone gets a coach shouldn't be worried about the entertainment value. Exactly, exactly. So I, I think that it teams have become so good at it that now it, we, we need somebody, if we're not going to change the rules, we need somebody innovative that, that finds a new way. Pep. Yeah, bring Pep to Gaelic Games. Maybe that'll solve our, solve our problems. Although his Possession-based love of consistency mantra, yeah. mightn't work out. Let's exert total control. I think, you know, yes, yeah, Pep yeah. had not on approvingly at yes, the approach yeah, here. Say, well done, everybody. Yeah, Keep it going. That was nice, yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I, what I think about the rule changes though if we're going to do that it can't be the tinkering there has to be a clear vision of how do we really want the game to be played and then once you have that otherwise you're just tweaking small things oh make it two hand passes in yeah. a row or something you don't re- that's not based on a really clear vision of what you want for the game and, and you know that's such an interesting point are we even like in agreement as to how we want her uh, GA to be played. Sorry, I'm just glancing up at the hurling. I think all the fans are on the pitch, but the game isn't over yet, so that's a bit distracting. Is Jamesy there? We'll try and get Jamesy in a second. The players are staying on. I think there's time to be played, and the referee's trying to get everybody off the pitch. Yeah, we'll just go over to Jamesy. I'm just getting distracted here. I'm <laughs> John Kiley's trying to chase children off a pitch. Is that what's happening? Yeah, I mean, listen, like Aver Quilligan, um, Willow Dunne, who had a chance, was hooked. I mean, there's one point between the sides, Joe, 123, 122. Limerick been, ahead by a point. Limerick ahead by one. It's been helter skelter. Ever Quilligan let a ball go wide, then took a quick puck out. Um, and I don't know, for whatever reason, suddenly there were Limerick supporters, young lads all over the field, whatever. You'd imagine that, it, you know, he's about to blow his whistle. Dimmer Burns could be turned over. Shane O'Donnell has it. Oh, surely a free ref. <laughs> Impartiality, please, Jamesy. Yeah, you might. Be, hopefully, he gives Claire one chance, and we get a chance next to the extra time. Yes, surely, ref. Come on, ref. Oh, <laughs> you must be Joe Chameleon Gordon. Final whistle gone, Joe. No free, I'm taking no it, Jamesy. No free. Limerick 123. Claire 122. We want it extra time, Joe. Um, and was it actually a free? And we're I relying thought, on you here. I, I thought it was a free. I, I listen. I'm biased. Claire, Claire goggles on, but um, you know, Claire, in fairness, just after putting themselves in a hole, Joe. I mean, last time I spoke to you, you know, Limerick had really taken a grip on it. They outscored Claire. 1-8 to 2 points in the first kind of 15 minutes of the second half but they dragged themselves and they were 119 to 115 I think down at that stage but they dragged themselves back into it however I mean they're 12 wides um, 6 of those in the second half to Limerick's 4 dropped a couple of chances into you know into Nicky Quaid's hands um, and they'll be gutted because again Joe they gave it absolutely everything in that last that last quarter Ian Galvin came off the bench made a big contribution he was busy got two good scores in play Shanahan got a point from play Limerick Adam English came on as a temporary so he nailed one Carl O'Neill I thought finished really strongly he got a couple of huge points from play um, but both sides out in their feet at the end Joe I mean giving it absolutely everything And oh, sorry, Jamesy I'm just seeing a replay 100% Clare should have had a free yeah I thought so I mean, man again, taken out off the ball 100% in yeah, fact it could I, be a red card as well I, yeah well listen again I mean Liam Gordon you know those, these are the marginal calls in which games are won and lost but look at Clare lost nothing in defeat but again you know, look at hats off to Limerick I mean you know what it's side Galan was brilliant now quite in the last quarter but I mean I think he'd won 11 Joe man of the match obviously you know won 3 from play nailed all the frees um, and he was a threat throughout and Keen Nolan just on a card as said early on lost his hurley for the goal slipped one or twice once or twice as well when 
you know what I mean it's just that angled ball and you're trying to twist and turn and obviously they've, they've got a hold of each other before the ball comes in so um, Clare eventually had to get him off um, you know got Paul Flanagan in there he came in for a finish Shane Amori came in initially um, but Clare is at the third quarter that's when it got away from them three points up at half time outscored us had one eight to two points in that period just couldn't get any traction um, and as I said that's you know they were chasing it from there to the end now listen they fought manfully and you know did really well to get back into it but they'll feel aggrieved Joe at the end that that wasn't a free and, and probably with some justification and at, 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 at that stage as well you know the crowd coming onto the pitch it certainly didn't help because Ever Cunningham had as I said got the ball away for a puck out the linesman or the, the umpire I think had called it wide when Quilligan maybe had you know thought that the ball was still in the field to play the ref then blew the whistle to tell him to go back in then the crowd invaded the pitch that takes another minute to get them off um, and it didn't help Claire at that stage but you know there's a sea of green and white now down in front of me um, listen five months of titles in a row Joe you know, you have to you have to credit their willpower, their desire. Thought their backs were excellent. Galan obviously brilliant up front. On a day when you know Tom Mercy, Hagerty, those guys didn't fire, but they, they all over the field. You know, they worked their they worked their socks off. And um, as I said, look at just Joe. It mightn't have been an, like I don't know what the neutrals will make, but it mightn't have been an epic. But it was claustrophobic. It was tense. It was yeah. savagely hard fought. And probably in terms of the Munster Championship, you know. Uh, a, a, a final that it probably deserved it mightn't go down as, to, as, as good as last year's um, probably wasn't as free-flowing or as high-scoring but by God it was intense it was a claustrophobic and the narrowest margin again once more between these two sides this, this must be a record year in the Munster Championship for either draws or one-point wins must yeah, be yeah but it, I suppose look at it just shows how little is between the top four sides and you know certainly the, clo- the, the, the pack have, have made ground on Limerick now you know Clare still the only team probably to get their nose in front and Asked Brian Lowe and he'd have preferred to have the, the one point win, you know, tonight, today rather than, you know, six weeks ago, whenever it was. But, uh, but Clare aren't done. And, and you'd certainly hope that they can pick themselves up, Joe. They've got Dublin or Carlo. Assume that'll be Dublin in the quarter final. Again, it's a bananas game. But you'd like to think that, you know, there's something still left in them and they'll still have a say in this uh, in this championship. And, you know, Limerick, as good as they were, still wouldn't fancy meeting Clare again. But credit to them hats off to them you know Dan Morrissey Barry Nash rock solid I thought at the, at, at the back uh, you know Burns again just good defensively Kyle Hayes again led the charge at the end he kept coming out with ball what an engine he has um, but it was it was another titanic struggle Joe and you know as I said uh, Claire just just one point short and it's cruel and sport is cruel but they've got to pick themselves up now there's still lots of hurling to be played this year from their perspective OK Jamesy thanks so much cheers Joe Limerick five in a row. Uh, back to the papers. We're here with Clean O'Connor and Tim McCarthy. I was just in the uh, throws making the point that it's an interesting point you raised, Clean, about the type of football that we want to see because I'm not even sure everybody can agree on that. For instance, I have no doubt that there'd be like a healthy quotient who would say, well, number one, I want fielding back and we should have a rule whereby goalkeeper has to kick the ball past the 45 so we have fielding. Like, I'm not sure I'm in that quotient because there is something a bit unsophisticated about that. I think like that kind of stops innovation so I don't know if I want to go fully down that route but then do I groan a bit when the keeper rolls it out and kicks it out to the cornerback a little bit so even like there in terms of what football we want to see I don't want to see like close your eyes and boot it up the pitch Mm -hmm. but I understand lots of people who would so even trying to get that agreement let alone the right rule to get the type of football that we might want to see together is doubly difficult yeah I mean it's hugely complex and I do know the the GAR are 
trying to get a handle on that in terms of the, their vision for the game, yeah. um, which I think is important. They are they they should be taking the lead on it, um, which they are. But I I think your your point is right. Like you you often these things are, are sorted by or or change happens because someone finds a better way. Yeah, someone shows shows a way. Oh, you can actually counteract that by doing this. What if this is the best way to play Gaelic football? Um, Lots of people behind very um, conservative in possession, keep control of the game. What if like the Roscommon point against Dublin is, is now to be talked about as, well, that is the zenith? Well, then we're, everyone's <laughs> going to become a hurling fan, aren't they? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, well, not necessarily. Not necessarily, because I think there are, there are, there, there's always different ways of doing things. Okay. What, um, what do you got for me? No. <laughs> Uh, Timmy are you as down on the product not to use that awful word but the the, the quality affair for the neutral this year more so than I don't know how far back you want to go I think the game has evolved in a negative way which is probably the bigger point so I think that and this year you know is the culmination of that negative evolution I believe Jane needs to evolve and I think it needs to evolve in a positive way and what, whatever, Gina's point is very important. You, know, you need to have a very clear vision about how, how you want this game to be played. Mm. Um, but this, you know, the, the whole thing about possession is, as a coach, as a GA coach, you want possession, you want to keep possession. But now we've got to the point where we're going back from the from their 45 all the way back to our goalkeeper to keep possession, you know, and start the journey all over again in that sense. And so creativity is, is being squeezed uh, in, in the game at the moment. Individuality is being squeezed uh, in the game at the moment, and you know we, we need to find you know a, a structure that allows you know talent be be seen. We need you know we need to allow and allow systems. I mean you know there are systems in all sports. We need to allow systems be seen, but we need to allow systems be seen in, in our natural sport that is entertaining. And you no, know, I'm a coach, so as a coach, I want to win. I'll give you. I want my team to perform, and if we perform often enough, we get the results. Really. That's the reality of coaching, in, in my experience. So getting the performance, and then you ultimately do enough. You know, within the tank, you you, you get enough W's when you need them. But as a fan, I want to be entertained. I want to see the best players perform at the highest level, and I want to see creativity and innovation. And I don't want to see it stifled. And we're stifled, Joe. We're just stifled at the moment in that sense. I mean. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, big GA guy, and you know, I, he's, I said, why don't you have a rule like basketball that you can't cross the half line? You can't go back over the half line once you cross it. I said, that's stupid. I said, why is it stupid? Because it forces you to think completely differently about how you play the game. No, I'm not saying that's the way, that, that, that's the way we're going to begin. And sorry. The concept is, yeah, to the concept is to yeah. do something different. And, and the other wrinkle, of course, is this isn't, you know, the elite of the elite. Let's make a rule change. You want... Yes club players playing exactly the same sport for obvious reasons as the elite so I mean when people talk about a shot clock I mean take a tour of all the pitches of Ireland and ask every referee how that's going to work out and also Joe when you think about like the, the, as you say the underage like, what's very sad to see at the moment in, in, in many underage games is 15 men behind the ball you know like these are young you know children like who, who are learning the freedom and expression of themselves and their teammates and the teams and the sport. And, you know, coaches have 15 men behind the ball. Like, like, let's to win, win the game. Skills. To win the game. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, like I've always loved winning. Okay. So I'm very clear on that. But the point is that, you know, we've got to find, we've got to find a way to teach the kids the skills, the values, 
the the importance of learning to play as an individual, to learn to play as, a, as part of a team, learn to play with your teammates in a skillful way, okay, and, and not just win a game because winning game is false to In reality, I mean, Clare lost today by a point. That doesn't mean they won't win the All Ireland. So winning a game can be false. You can win. I mean, I've no doubt Clare have been involved in games, or I've been involved in games where we won games that we weren't really probably deserving of. And we lost games that we were deserving to win. That's just the way sport is. In, in, in that but if it's all about just winning, ultimately if it's just about winning, then you get the evolution that we're now finding ourselves involved with uh, in, in football. But there's a way out of it. But we just need to make sure that it's well taught. And it's not a case of, I think we, you must keep beyond the 45 or, you know, you must have a shot up. You must think about, you know, and the grassroots. And that's one thing soccer does well internationally. It's a common game internationally. You know, there's the, the, you play the same rules, what you're, you know, that. So I, I, I hope that this culmination of the stifling world we found ourselves in will be the, the start of the next journey. And I believe the next journey and its evolution will be better for GA going Yeah. Clean, I'll give you a final word. Like a set number of players being kept in your attacking half is another uh, rule change which people have suggested. Probably is a bit more enforceable for referees. Um, it does feel like we are on the cusp though of real change because I would suspect most teams, particularly against equal or better teams, would be of the opinion that 13, 14, if not at times 15 behind the ball is just by dint of physics the best tactic. And we're all fit enough now to get numbers forward when we do turn the ball over. Like it's just so in vogue and very hard to turn around to Mayo against Loud and say, come on, break yeah. them down. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and I think that this that tactic of behind the wall is a great leveler. So if you're yeah. playing someone above you, you want to you want to stifle the game. You don't want to allow any cre- creativity. So you can see it's a, you can see it, the the rationale for mm. it absolutely. And, and, and if a manager went out and didn't do that against a better team and lost we would all be slamming that manager for being naive. Exactly. Why Why would you do that? Your, your job is to win the game. And and Timmy's point about creativity is important. The best managers, and maybe that's when you, you need you need those star players. And, and often change comes when you've got a certain player who can do a certain thing. Yeah. Think of Kieran Donaghy, think of Jack McCaffrey. They had an X factor and all of a sudden that changed something about how that team operated because they had a system but it allowed for these people to shine so it can I think a lot of it there, there's been a gap in Gaelic football the top teams and everybody else and I think that's why this has this also encouraged this to become more in vogue because it is a leveller hmm. and people are trying to close gaps It will be interesting to see how it all plays out we are um, way past our time unfortunately didn't get to everything we wanted to get to but Clean O'Connor here in studio and Timmy McCarthy uh, with us on the line thanks to you both appreciate you yes Timmy shoot I just wanted to just say um, obviously it was a very um, tragic week in Cork with the passing of Teddy McCarthy yeah uh, one of Cork's beloved you know obviously uh, you know dual winner in 1990 um, and somebody who you know basically was the epitome of what Jay, you know, is about in, in, in its in, in its best pomp in both hurling and football. And just to say, his family, his friends, and his clubmates, my sincere condolences on his passing. It was a, you know, it was a, just very sad and very tragic to, to, to see this week. Yeah, and Cleena had picked out a piece by Mick Foley on Teddy McCarthy, so my fault for us not getting to it. But uh, yeah, well said. Thanks to you both. We'll take a very short ad break. <laughs> 